And also, I saw the picture that you sent us for our Instagram. Oh, my God. What the hell? You're beautiful. <laughs> it is a drop I was like, what was wrong? I was, like, I was like, did I send the wrong picture? Like, what do you mean? And you need no, to like, send a new one. Yep. No, I opened the email and I was like, did she just, ca did you hire a photographer or is this a casual <laughs> oh everyday photo for you? Thank you. No. So, <laughs> so beautiful. The congratulations we're accepting you letters that go home should just have your face just this me. picture on them. Congratulations. <laughs> like, you made it. Look this? at, look at this beautiful person that came here too. Maybe one day you'll be like this. <laughs> hey, tired SLP. time for coffee tea and three slps okay well thank you so much for coming on so eileen you uh you and i met because we've been in some of the same classes in the psychology department um for people who listened to our episode with Tori Vizzini, Tori is another person who i scooped up from that same psych cohort i was like I'm just wandering the world like, come on my podcast. <laughs> and uh, Eileen said yes. And I'm so excited to have her here um, because a lot of what your interests are overlap really well with things that we think about as SLPs, especially SLPs working with bilingual or multilingual kids. And um, so thank you so much for coming on. Oh, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. I'm Eileen Fernandez. I am from Dallas, Texas. I graduated from Texas State University with my BA in psychology and Spanish. Um, and yeah, I, I got a lot of experience with research. I was an undergrad um, RA at my university. Um, and that all started with a bilingual study that we were working on at that time with children. So that's where everything kind of sparked. And then a lot of it also just comes from my personal experience as um, like a Latina and, and navigating that throughout my youth and my bilingualism and how that affected my identity development. And so exactly where I ended up now. So that also just evolved with my research experience. And I was like, hey, I want to study this. <laughs> how can I how can I do that? And so um, that ended up here at UMass with um, my program in developmental science. I work under Dr. Evelyn Mercado in the FAM lab. And here, I think we have a, our sticker and we'd like to show it off. <laughs> we have a sticker <laughs> oh, for our lab. Nice. So there it is on my water bottle. <laughs> so shout out to our FAM lab. Um, and yeah, that's like, I, I guess the gist about me and my research. I mean, well, my background. Cool. And this isn't related to what you just shared, but you also are an athlete, right? You play soccer. I did. Well, I, I can't say I'm an athlete anymore. Okay. I mean, I, <laughs> when's the last time I really played? Don't ask. But I grew up, yes, I grew up playing soccer. I mean, like that took up my whole life. So it was like, it, it still feels like almost, almost like I still play with just how much it was like a part of me. So, and I still like staying um, athletic in certain ways. I've actually been talking to other grad students who um play soccer on the side and I was like please invite me like I would love to pick it back up and I miss it too sometimes to just be able to like pass the ball around and blah 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 I think UMass has um well I I don't know if it, is it called like an intramural soccer like a club team because there's like yeah and there's like a club yeah yeah because um my boyfriend 
ran one a team one year uh in his undergrad because he went to UMass too so he would have games and have to coordinate things to go play soccer so it's there yeah it exists it is it's yeah I I um I played for the club team in undergrad and then COVID hit mm -hmm. so then you know things got wonky I didn't return mm -hmm. that's honestly I think yeah the last time I actually played um so yeah it's just I feel like a little nervous trying to find people to play with here especially because I'm also like I don't know how well I would do anymore like as soon as I start running now I feel like uh what happened <laughs> how could I do this like well, back to back as a youth and now I'm like like dying <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure though relatively speaking you're still very athletic the last time I played soccer I got my two front teeth kicked out no. knocked out um yeah second grade I I used to love grade. playing soccer in recess. Let me be clear. I was never on a team. I was never athletic enough in any part of my life to be on an actual team, but it was soccer. Beautiful day out. I'm feeling confident. I say, I'm going to be the goalie today, guys. It was like two minutes in. Someone kicked the soccer ball. And of course, I was just, I think I was distracted and I looked and <laughs> knocked no. my two front teeth out. Oh my goodness. Yeah. They're my baby teeth, thank God. But I just, I like, spit about there's like blood oh, everywhere I was crying yeah, so like, yeah oh. never again I never ever played soccer again so yeah, I'm not gonna injuries... lie soccer oh, yeah. scares the shit out of me I've had an insane amount of injuries and like it stinks growing up doctors are gonna be like you kind of have to live with this and my dad was always mm -hmm. like uh like why are we what's the point of going through all this you know if, mm. if she's just gonna get injured like I've had like three two or three concussions like I, yeah like yeah, all kinds of things on my legs so it, it's been through yeah. and I feel it now I'm like oh like my body hurts yeah so it's it's I think it helps staying active you know to yeah they'll say fluid so but you're right I think um yeah I still feel I think more or less that like, like athletic I think if I get back into it it kind of snaps back quick which is mm -hmm. a little neat, yeah but. hey SLPs are you in the midst of a tricky clinical situation? Are you looking for some clinical advice? Or maybe just some life advice in general? Send us an email at info at coffeetea3slps.com or DM us on Instagram at coffeetea3slps. Your questions may be featured on our podcast. Let's jump into language preference. So first of all, what does that mean? Um, that's not a term that I had heard. I don't know, Kyla and Julie, if you had heard that term or like thinking uh, in conversations with SLPs, I haven't heard people talking about language preference. And um, it's such an interesting and important idea that relates to so many of our, our students and clients. So uh, what is language preference? So, ooh, so language preference, I guess, on the surface level, how I would define it is just, and, and you're speaking with, um, in regard to bilinguals or anybody who speaks more than one language, essentially, um, is when presented in different contexts, different situations, what of your languages that you speak do you prefer in those specific contexts? Because um, that varies. For if you do speak multiple languages, you would know that that, that, that varies depending on who you're with, where you are and so many other small things about maybe the person that you are with, if it's family, if it's friends, 
if they are of higher low socioeconomic status, like I think all of there's there's so many contextual factors behind these situations that a bilingual person would prefer one language over the other, basically. Um, so that's how I define that. And it's not even a definition, but more of an explanation. <laughs> but um, I actually talk with Evelyn a lot, my PI, and we're always going back and forth with different terms with language preference, language use. And then this is more of like confidence speaking the language versus comfort in speaking the language. Um, and we have like different ideas for all of them. It's like, I, I actually wouldn't even say that those are necessarily interchangeable. They're just different ways of describing language use at that point. And so I think all, all of that goes behind language preference too. So you mentioned uh, comfort versus confidence. What's the difference? I always refer back. So today I'm just always talking about my experiences just because a lot of it comes from my experiences and I, I don't feel shy that other people experience it as well and I've talked to other people as well and it seems to be a common thing so for me I can feel um so I got my second degree in Spanish and so I since like high school or since middle school I was taking Spanish classes all the way through um and I've always found that in classes um I felt very comfortable speaking Spanish and very confident because I was in a in, involved with people who are also learning and in the, the environment was made to be comfortable so that you can you know make mistakes and learn so that is a situation where I was both confident and comfortable speaking when I'm with my family I am sometimes confident but not comfortable necessarily speaking it just because um they they can like mess with you. <laughs> they can tease you about <laughs> accent. It's almost part yeah. of the culture to, to just mess with you. And it's like, you don't take it personally. You don't let, you don't show that you take it personally, unfortunately, as a child mm -hmm. and, and or adolescent, you naturally do. Um, and mm -hmm. so it almost like conditioned me to feel a certain way speaking in front of them. And now naturally that's stuck on. And it's like, despite now how confident I can feel speaking Spanish somewhere else, it doesn't reflect that in the situation where you might think I would mm -hmm. because it's family, but it's just my experiences usually were to be like messed around with. So then I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't feel this way. So mm -hmm. I don't feel comfortable. And it's like, I can feel confident because I got my degree. I know Spanish, but at this point it's not even a level of comfort. I, I feel a little out of place doing it, even though I can do it. So those are kind of different ways I think that to look at it and why they are a little bit different and that you can basically have one or the other. And that's why they're not interchangeable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my family does that to me with Arabic. Like if I, the time, two times I went back to Egypt, they'd be like, oh my gosh, your Arabic's so broken. Ha ha ha. Say yeah. this. Did everybody yeah. say that? She sounds so American. <laughs> yeah. Or like you're just trying to converse and then they just like yeah. correct you and like laugh at you. They're like, that, that's yeah. not how you say that. It's this. And I'm like, right. I'm trying my best. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what Please. to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Uh. So. Yeah, some people get that. I think or a lot mm -hmm. of people get that. It's just, it's just mm -hmm. part of culture. So yeah. I don't try to, yeah. <laughs> but you're, but that's, I never thought about comfort versus confidence. I always equated the two, like, oh, if this is someone's L1, they're stronger, like their first language, they're stronger, they're going to feel more comfortable and confident no matter what. But it sounds like it's pretty context based yeah. more than skill based. And that's where I'm trying to get at. I think my my big scope, my large picture here is always trying to understand those um, contextual factors because it's just like, yeah. there's just so, so much behind it. I don't have the mm -hmm. answers yet at all to mm -hmm. understand 
um, or try to make sense of them all. All I know is that they're real, that they're prevalent. Um, and so that's kind of, I think my overarching goal is to at some point find a way to make it make sense, <laughs> find a way mm -hmm. to validate that for people because it is very real. And I think it has a lot to do with, um, it, I think it's like one element. I mean, there's, there's a lot behind cultural pride and, and cultural identity that influences adolescent development. Um, but this is just that one element that I am particularly interested in. I don't, yeah, I don't want to, there's, there's, there's plenty more that goes behind it, but I'm like, this is mm -hmm. a pocket that touches home for me that I would like to explore more at the end of the day. Are you specifically interested in adolescence and language preference? Um, I would say right now, yes. Like if I had to choose just because of like resources and everything, yes. But um, it's, I and I say that just because my undergrad, I had experience with four to seven year olds. So I feel like I touched on like even ch children, I was able to understand that and get experience with that. And so coming into the program, I was just, since we already have adolescents um, in our other studies, it just became this like, well, now I would like evolve my experience and see what this more and then just kind of reading papers reading up on it more I started making the connections with like identity development I was like this is really cool I really like this um and so I think for now like yes I'd like to stick to adolescents or something I'm also starting to include is like um emerging adults so kind of undergraduates probably in those early like 1920s see how that also looks so it's kind of this I would say developmental stage since we are still developing by like really what, 25. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of like how this gap I'm so far focusing on. Wow. Yeah. I, something I really appreciate about the conversations that I hear in, in the psych department are how you're always thinking about context and how important that is and all how like embracing the complexity of all the different factors that influence development and identity and so it's been cool to to hear you talk about some of these ideas yeah especially from you remember Kirby's class last semester um it is our I don't even remember the name of human development <laughs> I think it was I think so yeah uh but something I also got out of that and I think that's that's I've started applying um to my work is is that idea that there's just we acknowledge that there's so much that goes into uh one thing that you're trying to study um and that it's not I don't want to say impossible but it's you know if you really want to understand it you, I, I look at it as like a bottom up you know you try to start looking at it in these fragments and start connecting them it it would be really difficult to just try to get at it at this like one big chunk um to just say like let's look at everything all at once it's it's I think with experimental research and that's just a little difficult it's not really feasible and so that's why I'm like I've taken this approach I'm like this is just one aspect I acknowledge that it's one aspect of many but you know it's two cents forward to something bigger at the end of the day so yeah can you talk us through the study that you worked on with the four to seven year olds and then we can transition into what you're doing now oh my gosh yes I love talking about that thanks let's do it <laughs> it's just so cute <laughs> So um, it was looking at language. So it, we had it like title with language preference. Um, we had PowerPoints essentially presented to them. These were done on Zoom. Uh, this was still kind of post early COVID. And I think originally before COVID, they had done this in person, but that was before I had gotten there. So I had more experience with everything on Zoom. 
um, but we had these PowerPoints with puppets on them. So um, they would be presented with the same puppet on a screen, like um, it would be like a lion. Um, and there's two lions on the screen, one with like a blue scarf, one with a red scarf, just to identify that they were separate lions, two different ones. Um, and then they were given, they had pieces of food. So it was like pizza slices, like five, I think it was. And we chose an odd number so that they were forced to allocate one more to the other one. So, but before they did that, the the puppets would speak to each other. And this was like some of our RAs, it'd be like, I am hungry. And then the other puppet would maybe say it in Spanish, like, oh, yo, yo tengo hambre. And so those were all counterbalance. We had different versions that were spoken first. Um, we had some that were English, but with Spanish accents, some that were just English with American accents um or just purely spanish and then english or then just two spanish puppets so they were counterbalanced in all these different ways um which is really really cool and um at the end so sometimes they, the kids were asked um you know if you had to share your food um you know share your pieces to these people to the, to the puppets um so they allocated that we looked at which one they gave the extra one to and we would ask why and then i think we also asked if you wanted to be friends with them uh, with the puppets like which one would you rather be friends with um and then our last question was who do you think you'd get along more with um I think something like that and so we just took their responses we did that a couple we just made it fun made it like a treasure map so that kids were in engaged <laughs> and so um yeah and so we just looked at their responses it was all qualitative so then we took that and would code created a coding scheme for different patterns that we saw um, in their responses. So if they said a lot of, because they're four to seven year olds, it wasn't surprising. Some kids um, would say like, I like the scarf, uh, this puppet looks nice. Like this one's cute. <laughs> so, you know, we had to code those as well. But what we ended up seeing was that younger kids were more um, metalinguistically aware of their language preference. And I'm sorry, I never even said that. That was the whole aim of the research project was to the at what age they they were metalinguistically aware of their own language preference if they were to identify that I like this puppet more than the other because they speak my language or because I know this language I understand that um and so the youth the, the four to five year olds were not as we didn't see that happening but those are where we got those answers about the color of the scarf the puppet how it looks they seem nice um but the six and seven year olds were the ones that were a bit more not a bit they were more aware of their um, language preference and so we got responses like, um, they sound like me, or they sound like my mom, or I understand what they're saying, and it would be like two different languages. And so, and we were also in contact with parents. There was like a funny instance where this kid's like, yes, I speak Spanish. And then the mom was like, no, we, neither one of us speaks Spanish. I don't know why they sing that. <laughs> and so... <laughs> This is funny to, yeah, I, and I talked to, I actually <laughs> talked to Megan Gross, who uh, we met, Brittany, but Megan Gross is a, um, she's another researcher at UMass who looks at bilingualism, um, and I actually met with her earlier this week, too. We were talking, and she was telling us about, she also looks at four to seven-year-olds, and she was just, we were sharing experiences about funny responses, and that one child that she experienced says, I, he asked her, or they asked her, um, are we going to speak hi or hola? And that's how they refer to their languages oh. was, was saying, yeah. And I was like, that is so cool. Like, I can't believe that. So yeah. it's also just really, you know, without any looking at data, it's just interesting to see though, how kids refer to language. And it's, and I feel my, what I can tell so far is that 
it's not that they're not aware of it. They just don't know how to express it. They don't, you know, mm-hmm. say it in a way that we necessarily would make sense of. So you kind of have to really put yourself in their shoes for a second and understand like that. That would be, I would say he is metalinguistically aware, um, mm-hmm. but that's just how he expressed. I'm saying he, I'm sorry. They, I don't know what the child, but but that's how they, they expressed it. So that mm-hmm. was that. That was a really cool project to work on. I had a lot of fun. Um, and then we ended up evolving it into adults towards the end of my senior year. And so by adults, I mean, we use the undergrads um, through Sona, like at our university. Um, we cut down the, honestly, we kept the, we kept the puppets because we were like, this, this is still be fun for, <laughs> for mm-hmm. young adults. But we, instead of five, we put three, I think, of the foods just to not make it as long. Um, we did cut and cut the, the whole project a little bit didn't, without as many um, slides. And then we also included eye tracking, which was really, really cool. Um, that was a lot of fun. So we were trying to look then at the association between where they were looking, um, the areas that they were looking most at and what they would respond and see if those were correlated. Because we were also thinking that they may give us a different response, but they may be looking at something more and maybe they feel like they need to say something because they're just trying to I don't know maybe assimilate to this feeling that they should say this they should feel this way and then that's kind of also where my ideas came from is that sometimes you feel like you should speak a certain language because of the situation like if I'm around maybe a predominantly white community and I don't feel comfortable um Mm -hmm. but maybe I feel I'm confident (laughs) but I'm just not comfortable speaking it then Mm -hmm then yeah, I'm not going to prefer Spanish. I'm just going to stick mm-hmm. to English. So, so yeah, that's a little bit of that. It's so interesting. I feel like that study that you did with the kids and then of other things that we've learned about and know now is it just so much more evidence that being bilingual or speaking more than one language in the home is not confusing for a kid no. that they can it does still support their language awareness and language acquisition. Um, so that's a, that's exciting that we're still seeing research and that you did research that showed, no, the, it's not confusing. They know they'll yeah. into, become in tune with both languages and acquire both. So that's yeah. really neat. And it's just, it looks really cool to look at the different ways that it influences um, kids and their development. And I think, yeah, because I got that experience with with kids and seeing how that mm-hmm. influenced just their awareness, then I was interested in adolescence because it's like, mm-hmm. okay, from there, how does that evolve? Um, and then like, I always talk about in just typically what we know, adolescence is such a mm-hmm. critical point of de- identity development. I'm sure we all remember mm-hmm. that like ourselves too. <laughs> You're trying mm-hmm. to navigate a bunch of those things. And so, yeah. And, and I've just been like reading a lot about I think it's Erickson's theory of identity. Um, and he talks about that as well. Like in your youth, you usually pick up your environment and the people around you, their values, because you just absorb that. And then in, in your adolescence, you start picking what you absorbed as a child, but then incorporating more of your personal interests, your values, and the, those start coming in. And so you start thinking a bit more independently and acknowledging those feelings that you might have always felt, but you couldn't necessarily... Mm-hmm they just were internalized so you start actually you know making them a bit of a reality and seeing how that how that ends up how I word that how that ends up influencing you I guess yeah impacting you name dropping Eric Erickson that's what's (laughs) up she's a real psych student 
I remember, well, I remember learning I, about Erickson, <laughs> but I, I don't remember that like, much. All my papers. <laughs> well, I've, I've been like working on it, to be honest, all week, like writing my papers. So it's just all really fresh right now. <laughs> but maybe, maybe it's my memory because I actually, this is so funny that um, there's a clinical student that emailed me yesterday. Uh, she was at a conference and she was like, hey, I saw this um presentation on um cognition and they included like an aspect of bilingualism and how that influences um like a bilingual cognitive function um she's like look at these slides like you know 20 to so-and-so I sent them to me and I was looking at them yesterday and that was one of the findings of the memory and they were like yeah this is bilingualism or who are bilingual it, there was just evidence in the specific project and like the memory task that was included and that they had preferred performed better than monolinguals Anyway, so that was my little joke that maybe that's why. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <Just> that <great. laughs> yeah, I, when you started talking or using the phrase metalinguistic awareness, I was reflecting on like my own upbringing and how that's not something that because I grew up in a household that spoke English, you know, I grew up as a monolingual English speaker. I never it's not even something I ever considered is like what language would I prefer? Because it's always going to be English. And I'm living in a context where English is like assumed to be the quote unquote standard language. And so I wonder if, you know, I, there's like privilege there and there's context and there are so many different angles. I feel like you could look at metalinguistic awareness. Like, what are your thoughts right. on that? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think that's, um, there's like, just in general, I think with my, what I've been getting myself involved with more bilingual work and people who study it. I've been even, I've been also learning about all the different angles that you can approach it at. And it's insane to me. I'm like, this is like, this is why I want to look at this because it's like, there's so much to it. Why isn't there more already about it? Um, and yeah, I don't, I, you bring up a great point is that, um, and I, we talked about that during the project with the four to seven year olds was, is it that, the monolinguals are not metalinguistically aware or is it that that's something that they don't have to consider because that's all they know um and that's not to say that they're not necessarily aware but that's just this, like this whole other realm that's not even touched necessarily um because they're not presented with it um and I don't know I wouldn't I wouldn't I can't say you know for me if that was like a, if that, that would be a privilege or not um because I don't know and that'd be really really cool to explore more I need to I, I don't have too much knowledge about metalinguistic awareness besides like that and like a little bit but I'd like to read more and see what what else you know current work is saying about that I know people study accents too which is I, I've read some papers about that which is really really neat and how um kids prefer like an American accented English versus like a Spanish accent in English and mm -hmm. mainly because of those feelings that they that that's what the standard that that's good um I know in like some Latinx culture, there's also talk from parents that is sometimes in trying to uplift English and, and try to cut out the Spanish because they want they want your their youth to to grow up and have better privilege. So they think that by speaking Spanish is is not a good thing. That sometimes that's like you're gonna be looked at, you know, differently. You're gonna be looked at this way. So you they want you to really get down English so that that you don't have that that compromise, you know, to anybody that seems to be a little bit more of a traditional way. And I, I think that's evolving because now we do see a lot of uh, praise for, for bilingualism. You know, if you speak more than one language, especially Spanish, like that's looked at as like, we, you know, that's a really good thing. I feel like I was always told growing up, that's why I ended up getting my degree in Spanish. It's not that I necessarily needed it. I mean, it did help um, teach me Spanish in like a professional way, but 
it was also, it was like you were told like, oh, it's, it looks really good on your resume, you know, to do this. It looks really good to, to, to have that on there. But people just like to see that you can speak multiple languages or at least like English and Spanish. And mm -hmm. so I think that is also changing the way we look at it. Something that I've noticed, because I work in a very um, heavily bilingual area. Um, and so what I've noticed is a, a lot of my kids, once they start to learn English in school, they really hold on to it and they're excited by it. And then the parents are upset because now they don't want to speak Spanish at home. And mm -hmm. the parents um, have, I've had several parents express to me that they're um, upset and maybe like saddened because their kid is like, I don't, I don't want to speak Spanish or I only speak English. Um, so I've seen that kind of be a trend as well, that now like kids are coming to school and they want to speak English even though all of their peers speak Spanish at this school too, it's like, um, I don't know, they're just holding on to this like new language that they have. And sometimes I get stuck, you know, telling parents, like, like consoling parents, but I'm just like, tr try your best. I don't know. Keep, keep talking to them in Spanish. Do and that's the other way that a lot of the stuff that I'm reading now is about that and, and the positive impact that culture maintenance has and that that's a lot, a lot of, Typically, people of color try to maintain that within their families, and language is like one aspect of it. If if, it, if it's a culture that it has another language, that they're just they try to keep it in, involved because that's just one way to maintain their cultural pride and and to keep traditions continuing through generations. And I think that's getting more difficult. As I think, like I look at my own family, everything I always refer to is just like my experience, my family, but. Um, like my grandma is from Mexico and then just looking quickly about like just that generational difference from her to me, it's really not that far, but I'm already struggling to keep it. And I, that's why I, I try to, you know, make it so active in my life because it's something that I want to maintain. But it's like my personal interest is to maintain my culture. That is something that is part of my identity that I value a lot and that I'd love to pass down to my, my family when I have that in my life. And so, um, but it's, it's it's just proving to be more difficult, I think, from my end, because I was raised in this entirely different environment. And I'm typically not around actually my people of color and like my own community. And so I have to almost actively seek it um, just because we don't see a lot of people like myself, like in the, in the programs and in the world that I'm in now. So it's, it's, it takes a lot of effort on your end to do it. But I think it's, for me, it's important. I think it's, um, that's preference, but, um, but yeah, like a lot of the stuff that I'm reading about though, is just that maintenance and that there's this struggle between that. Or I know even some families have this dynamic and this is like, especially between like my parents is that they speak to us in Spanish. Um, but I respond in English typically just like my own family. And so that works too. I think that's one way. I think that's like a nice middle. <laughs> I don't know for us, that's how it works. So yeah, no, I don't. I don't know that I was. I was just kind of continuing what you were saying, but that's really interesting to see that. What you just said makes me wonder about a bilingualism and like just the broad variety, the broad nature of what that can look like. You know, like there, I've seen started to see this online, kind of in the, um, at least in the SLP Instagram, like bilingual SLP kind of. It, part of Instagram is like, there's no perfect bilingual and there's no right or wrong way to be bilingual. Yeah. And did you have thoughts on that? You know, what does bilingualism mean and what can that look like? 
That's yeah, I think that's huge. I was just reading something too that it said exactly that, that it's like they're redefining what bilingualism even means um, currently. And it's just kind of like, what does that really encompass? I don't know. I think for me, I don't, I don't necessarily have my own thoughts. I feel like I'm still learning, um, still reading and trying to navigate my own definition of that as well I think I could I think growing up all I ever thought of bilingualism was just the ability to speak one just two languages two languages and that was it but obviously I have a different lens on that now I think it's there's I think it's it's evolving essentially too just from the, the word by that there's being that's too uh like I keep that standard there but that you know there's a lot more that's just behind this like that's just if you want to define what you know what it, what it means sure but Yes, I'm fully aware that there's so so much that goes behind it. When you when you said that there's no right or wrong, that also makes me think of um, culture maintenance at all, and and it's like um, that looks so different for everybody. Um, and I think for that, it's if I had to define culture maintenance, is like is the prevalence of an effort to maintain it. It doesn't matter what that looks like, um, because I think another struggle I had growing up, and that I know many others like myself could have um, more or less is this feeling that I'm, I feel like I'm struggling, but I'm still trying to make this effort to, to learn Spanish, to speak it, to stay involved in the culture, whether that's through music, through um, just anything kind of like that you see online, like, I don't know, just embed myself with my culture, that you still could get ridiculed by by that from your own people. Um, and then you still looked at, you know, like, you're just not Mexican enough. You're just not, like, I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm essentially, I am speaking Spanish to them, but because it doesn't sound super fluent, super native, it's still not enough um, to, to some people, or they just look down on it, or they look at it in a different way. And I think that's why another aspect of it is why I want to like research this, because I think it's, it's like that, I think I always thought it was silly to say that that's not enough, you know, like it doesn't change that, that I am, you know, of this heritage, that doesn't change that I do come from this, that I do know it. Um, and I think that's why it's important to look at and for people, more people to understand all those different context behind it just so that we could be a bit more flexible and understanding to those who are trying to maintain it at all and I think it's like acknowledging that if people are still making that effort like that, that's what's really valuable and that's their decision even if they don't want to that's okay but for those that do and decide to it should be in this people should be encouraging you know supportive and re respect the fact that that's something that they're trying to do for mm -hmm. themselves and so I even one of my close friends is she's mixed um and her partner is like of Mexican descent too. And, and so even though she didn't grow up involved with her Mexican side of her family that much, or she didn't have that culture, she's almost like maintaining it through him and that she's been able to learn more about her own, you know, part of her identity. Um, and now she's fully invested and like, it's fun that she, that we can like, we can, we can, uh, what's the word, get along in those ways too now. And so like that it's like I wouldn't bash her because she just she's maybe bad or doesn't speak Spanish you know fluently but that she still makes these efforts and listening to the music and saying the lines that she knows and trying to be involved with like the culture mm -hmm. I think that's great I'm like this is awesome like it's good it's so interesting um because I've seen that happen that perceptual piece I've seen it happen to my dad so um my dad grew you know, grew up his whole life in Egypt until he was like 30, still speaks fluent Arabic, like an Egyptian through and through. Um, but the last time we went to Egypt, he had to, he was perceived as a tourist a lot of the time when we would go out and do like, we we had got out and um, 
we were going to do the, you know, the camel ride around the pyramids. Um, and the, he was trying to talk to someone who was trying to give him a higher ticket price for, to do this. And he was like, no, we're not paying that. And they're like, well, this is a tourist price. He's like, I'm not a tourist. I, li I lived here my, I lived here my whole life. Um, but it was just interesting that he, it's just like little, I don't know, it's these little nuances that can really impact someone's perception on if you belong, if you're an outsider, like to the point yeah. where even if you've lived in that culture and maintained it your whole life, you know, we've lived in America for so long and going back, he's now perceived still as mm -hmm. a visitor or a tourist. Right. And it's, it's yeah, it's all, in, I, I've had those experiences too, where it's just um, the way you look, um, the way mm -hmm. you dress, the way you carry yourself, even I guess the extent of your like language and how you, you speak. Mm -hmm. um, I think between my family, like we were always looked at a little bit differently since we were raised different um, from the majority of like my other family members. And it just kind of stunk because it's like, uh, for me, like the biggest thing that would like eat me up during my adolescence is feeling like in my predominantly Mexican community, I wasn't Mexican enough. I didn't look like this enough. I didn't, you know, carry myself in a certain way enough. And then in this other way, um, with my predominantly white community, like I was raised in, I was also the the outlier because I was the, the brown one. I was like the, the one that looked different mm -hmm. between all my friends. And so it was just, it's like, I never felt like I belonged to either. And even though I had pockets of um, comfort in each, it they also would reject me and it or it's not that they were like actively just sitting there rejecting me but there were like you said these nuances of between talk that just made you feel like oh I don't think they look at me like themselves like there's just something about it that makes me somehow feel distinct even though they're mm -hmm. kind there's just these little differences and so mm -hmm. it was like I don't belong in either does that mm -hmm. mean I can create a new pocket of people like me and try to make sense of that so that we feel a bit more inclusive and we validate, you know, both of our identities as being like, it's not, I think as I got older, it's not one or the other. It is both. I'm like, this is, that this is like, this very experience is, is real. And that in itself is just like its own thing. And that's very validated and that's true. And that's okay. Like I accept that. Mm -hmm. um, and that's beautiful. It's like being able to combine these things, I think is, is what's really mm -hmm. awesome. Um, so I think in my head, I've always thought that too, is like with my work and my, with my impact, it's like to validate those people who may feel like they're not one or the other, but that this is both this medium. Did you read my college essay? That's <laughs> literally what I, <laughs> Aww, that was the outline of my college essay. <laughs> you get it. It's real. I'm like, you talk to lots of people of color and it's so real. And I'm like, it's yeah. really awesome talking mm -hmm. to other people. And but, growing up, you're like, this is real. Yeah. I wasn't crazy. <laughs> right. No, but what's what's so crazy too, to add to the crazy is that I didn't realize other people had the same experience because there isn't space to talk about it necessarily or like there isn't space to want to necessarily disclose like oh hi uh I'm a I'm Egyptian and I've lived in America my whole life and I don't know where I belong yeah. um <laughs> I don't know it's just like where's the room there isn't necessarily room to talk about it because you don't no. you have to find other people that are kind of in the middle zone um, which is like scarce, which is hard but they're there yeah it's like right. they're there but you it's it, 
not like they're naturally coming across it all the time or you see people but mm-hmm. you just don't know them I guess that well and you're like I don't know right right it's like hey I'm Julie um it's so nice to meet you do you feel like you don't belong in either one of your cultures because yeah, me well, too <laughs> where's our support group where's our support group I, I need it that's so true oh my gosh yes <laughs> I needed that so desperately as a, as a teen yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm mm-hmm but I think um I think it's also I feel so grateful for my position to be you know mm-hmm. a grad student here um I think that was also like since I was a kid I always like anything science related um and I think one of my old big goals as, as like a youth growing up I was like despite what it is that I do it will be science but whatever it is that I do it's like I want to get there just so that it sounds so corny but it really is like something I had to just try to always uphold is is to create these be, be the 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 person that people look up to so that when other kids and other Latinas who want to get into STEM are looking people up because that was something I'd always do is like look things up mm-hmm. and see if there's people there that look like me um so that I know I can make it I'm like oh I see like when I was like looking at UMass I saw people of color and I was like so I can get in like it, it is possible like I can do it it's like mm-hmm. this revalidates in your head so I was like okay I just want to be that extra one more person involved that that makes mm-hmm. it so that um that we see more of it and it's not this like this this thing that you don't see often and you're like can I do that or can I it's gonna be like I know that they're there because there's more of them so I just want to mm-hmm. be that extra one so I was like I gotta mm-hmm. work my booty off to do this like I really want to do this so a lot of passion behind it all because of you know my own experiences but it honestly is really nice to keep driving me hey SLP if you've got some festering rage that you just need to get off your chest, let us know. We've all been there. Send in your Mr. Bear hate mail to info at coffeetea3slps.com for a chance to be featured on our podcast. Sometimes it feels good just to let it all out. So what are your current projects? and what are you doing now are you working are you doing studies with adolescents in the lab so so yeah oh gosh this is perfect because I'm about to present on this on Tuesday at our seminar <laughs> gives me a little practice about my pitch <laughs> but um <laughs> essentially where I'm at now is um uh so our current project that we have going on in our fam lab um one of our projects we call it the Latinx study honestly we just haven't come up with like a official name we just call it Latinx study um and it looks at experiences of discrimination and its association between um that and their well-being so we look at parent and teen dyads um and what that looks like is we um, interview parents and teens separately we go through like an hour-long survey with them there's a bunch of scales that get at discrimination um and the reason we use a bunch of different scales one was to first it, well, mainly the, the purpose of using a lot of scales, I think, in this pilot is to just see which scales best suit adolescents versus teens, because some that apply well for um, for parents don't necessarily apply for kids that ask about, you know, jobs and experiences with work and stuff. Since a lot of our teens haven't aren't there yet. They're still, I think our average is about 15 right now. So they haven't had those experiences yet. So it's just to see what scales work best with who, um, because there are a lot of discrimination scales. 
Um, so we have that. Um, after that survey, we get measurements of their waist, their circumference of their waist, their hips, their height, and their weight, and then a saliva sample. Um, we teach them how to collect their own saliva there, um, and that's also the first one they collect. And then they collect, I think, four more on their own on a separate day. Um, we retrieve them at a later date, um, send them to Sally Metrics, and we've already done this with 13 dyads. Um, and we get back their cortisol, their insulin, um, some other things, I don't remember off the top of my head, but just stress hormones. Um, and so we've been looking at that association between discrimination and their stress and, and how that's affecting them. And then they're also just their physical being. Um, so yeah, so that's what that's looking at right now. And, but, so I say that just because, and include the survey, because one aspect of our survey asks, what language do you prefer in home? What language do you prefer outside of home? So that was my, starting point for everything just to get wheels rolling um we we're like let's just first look at what the resource we do have with parents and teens what is that what does that language preference on the surface level look like for them so um I got some frequencies of that it was pretty interesting to see um the results from that just to get like a, at a quick glance what that looks like with our current dyads so from there I ended up defining for myself a positive alignment and a negative alignment between parents and teens a positive alignment being that parents and teens, when asked, say, like, what language do you prefer in home? If they both said Spanish, that would be a positive alignment. They're, they're both agreeing on the language that they prefer mm -hmm. in home. Negative alignment I defined as the opposite. If what language you prefer in home, or that could be outside of home. I'm just saying in for an example. But, um, and if, you know, the parents, and, and we did see this. So there was a negative alignment when asked about the language preference in home. Um, parents said Spanish, whereas the teens were preferring no preference. They just said they prefer English, Spanish, whatever it was like open to them. Um, outside of home, there was a positive alignment that they both preferred English, which was interesting. So, mm -hmm. um, so just from looking at that, I can't extract too much, but just getting an idea, honestly, was where I was at with that point. So taking that, my next steps that I would plan to propose are to create some focus groups right now with um, like adolescents in the community and then the emerging youth in, um, at UMass. I just wanna first sit down honestly, um, with like a set of students that have um, youth and just talk about it openly. Like I haven't, I haven't honestly organized like the exact questions I'm gonna ask, but I plan to get some questions ready to have a discussion about language preference. Um, to just hear from the youth about what that looks like for them, just have them express themselves in an environment where they're with people like themselves. They're probably going to feel the same way about certain things. So I would, I would think that there's going to be really great conversation from that. And honestly, just to get me, I feel like I'm just really trying to first learn from like people around me, like members of the community, family members, just really understand from them qualitatively, what, what does that mean to them? Um, when do they prefer these languages? I even sent me out. I sent questions to my like a group message in my family, <laughs> like my entire family, and, and it was really great. So they a lot of them responded back. Like I was like, send me this email answering these questions, please. Like if y'all don't mind. And it was like, what language do you prefer and why and all these different things. And so, um, just to really see, it's just kind of a step to see how you know what direction I should take from there. Um, and then from there, my big goal is to try to create a scale item that gets at these contextual factors because uh, I think a lot of what we see right now in our current literature is just this this like what language do you prefer and why or just what language do you prefer in this situation and I just feel like we're not we're not getting at this level it's like because I know if I was asked I'd be like 
um, I prefer this, but it also depends on this, this, this in that same situation. Um, so I don't have any like specific ideas as to how I'm going to do that, but that is my goal is I'm like, I think there can be a better scale item that gets at these contextual differences between them so that people can better define what that language preference means because there's more to it um, that I think we need to hear from from bilinguals. And so those would be my next steps to just, and then I'd, I'd hopefully propose that through undergrads at SONA. Um, ideally, I would like to do it through adolescents, but I feel like I'm just first kind of working with the resources I have and really absorbing what I can learn from that. Another really cool thing about the undergrads at UMass that I'm interested in looking at kind of like a side project would be that from 2002 to 2017, there was an initiative in the state of Massachusetts that um, forbid any other language other than English to be spoken at schools, at any public schools. What? So, yeah. And what? so mm -hmm. In Massachusetts? Yep. I know. My, I was, one of my professors was explaining this to me, and she's, she presented this idea to me. She's like, this should be really interesting for you to look at. She's like, I remember. Mm -hmm. I lived here. My kids were raised at this time, and it was... She's like, I heard from a lot of people in my community how obviously like awful that was for bilinguals that if they were, yeah, they couldn't even, they couldn't speak any other language at, at school besides English. And so I'm, I have to find the exact name. It's like a, a really long name of the title. But <laughs> um, so from that, what I'd be really interested in looking at is from 2002 to 2017, most of those kids, I think, who were raised at the time, assuming they were, you know, raised in public schools in Massachusetts um, and have attended UMass now and grew up in a, a bilingual household, I'd be interested to see how that influenced their their comfort or their confidence with language, um, because I'm sure that's affected somehow their ability to speak Spanish or in general, how they feel about their feelings towards, you know, speaking Spanish and in public or in different situations. So assuming that they're, I'm, I wanna say, maybe it's not a great population, but just a, an idea to take from that. I'm sure there's a population of students at UMass who were, who were raised during that time. And so, um, so yeah, so I'd be kind of curious about that too, mm -hmm. which is why I was looking at the undergrads here. Um, but from there, even next step after that would be hopefully that this scale in a perfect world would be able to be distributed to any age group, you know, that it's, and I, I know it won't be perfect, but I would hope that I could, you know, distribute it to both kids and adolescents and, you know, young adults and it find kind of the same thing or even between other languages, that would be really cool to make it interchangeable between not just Spanish, but I'm sure there's, there's a tons of different other um, variations of bilingualism. So, so those are kind of my next step. It's very rough, but it's just kind of like, I kind of like picking from here to there with resources I have, just kind of fill my brain up with what I can know um, mm -hmm. so that I can organize from there a bit more. You know, it would be so cool to look at um, so going back to the lion puppets, I don't need mm. my hands for this. Um, if, or no, hold on. Yeah, I will use my hands. So if you had like the puppet, um, go to like, you show the puppet going to different places in the community, like the puppet, oh, oh I speak English and Spanish. And then you show the puppet going to different, like, oh, I'm at the library, but everything in the library is in English. And maybe just little bits are in Spanish. And you say, should the the lines meeting the draft should the line say hi or hola and see what what oh they pick gosh. and then you those. go to some they go to the store and most of it's in spanish all the words that are in spanish mm -hmm. and then maybe a little bit of the words are in english and then they say should i say hi or hola to my friend the tiger <laughs> at the grocery and store and see like 
see if what what they pick or even if you had like no words and no language anywhere and then that could and then you could see without any um literacy cues around what they picked and see see the difference that would be a fun one and another use for the puppets and then you can get more puppets puppets. (laughs) and you could just keep buying puppets (laughs) (laughs) for my work for my research you don't understand (laughs) (laughs) but that's so true because I feel like um when I talk about when I just say contextual factors I never really go into it just because there's so many but I mean Mm -hmm. just to stop with some examples that you were even mentioning is grocery stores it's like I you could sit there and say grocery stores, but it's like you would want to identify grocery stores in your community um, mm-hmm. that you may go to right. often versus a grocery store outside. And like where I grew up in Dallas, mm-hmm. we had um, we have Kroger's. I don't know if y'all are familiar with Kroger's. It's a grocery store. Y'all don't, yeah, they're not up here. But for me, that was like down the street. That's just like a standard like like stop and shop or big Y. Um, so mm-hmm. the standard grocery store. But there were like 15 minutes away. Um, a store called Fiesta which is a grocery store but with like it it obviously has like typical grocery items like any other grocery store would but a huge section of Latin food you know like tons of things like you have buckets of beans (laughs) beans are a huge uh, um, food item in in our in our diet and so Mm -hmm. or you know different kinds of Latin sodas and and so we have all this other stuff like imported so it's a huge Latino grocery store um and like that would be an example because I know in Kroger I'm going to speak English because there's absolutely nobody there that's going to speak Spanish. There's no need to. Or I know like there's been instances when I'm speaking with my mom and it crosses my mind. It's kind of unfortunate that it does, but it's like I hope no one is triggered at the fact that my mom and I are speaking Spanish at a predominantly mm-hmm. white community grocery store. You know, because I've heard of instances like that. I've seen it online. I've seen that that's a very real mm-hmm. thing. And it's like I don't. I hope that doesn't happen. Like you know, just kind of being shy of that. Versus in this fiesta, I mean, I'm going to feel we're so comfortable speaking Spanish. Everybody in there is speaking Spanish, um, but mm-hmm. they're also very comfortable speaking English. It's, I know it's not the other way around, you know, like at a fiesta, they're not going to be like, don't speak English. It's just speak what you feel comfortable with because it's very open in here. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I think like that, that's just like one example of why it's like in your community versus um, I don't even know how you word it. I'll just outside your community. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. different areas. So yeah, that is a super cool idea. I really like that. I'm gonna have to get in touch to my undergrad supervisor and be like, we need to power this thing back up. And yeah, look at it in a different look. And then keep <laughs> us keep us posted because that would be super cool to yeah. to see what the results are. Or I don't know, just if you guys well, end I've, up going through with I it, really like cool. it because you even made me aware of the fact that it doesn't have to be you know a questionnaire. Maybe a questionnaire is not the way to approach this. Maybe it, it has to be presented like these scenarios, these very um, concrete um, situations mm-hmm. to present to people and be like, okay, in this instance, what would you prefer? And extract, you know, those patterns from that. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's like, there's just so many, there's so many, so much involved with it. I'm like, I, that's crossed my mind too. I'm like, how do I even begin to ask mm-hmm. those kinds of questions, you know? Right. Right. Whatever tool you design survey or scenario, send it to us and we would use that in the SLP world so often Mm -hmm. like that would be a really useful tool working with Mm -hmm. families and better understanding 
their language preferences and in mm -hmm. different contexts. And I think that would be so valuable for us. Cause yeah, I don't oh, think yeah. there's anything that really exists like that now. Right? No, not really. I never see anything like it. Mm -hmm. Just, it's just crazy. Cause I'm like, we've, there's like Spanish is the second most, second most spoken language in the, in the U S and it's mm -hmm. like, I feel like everybody knows somebody who's bilingual. You just, it's just, that's just natural. And so it's like, how is there, how, how do we not have this? Like, there's a lot of us here <laughs> mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. looked at. Like, it's, it's just mm -hmm. natural that it should be included a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've learned so much from you just being in classes with you. And I feel like I just always appreciate your insights. And oh my your, gosh, thanks. I just, I just love what you have to say. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or another? Um, yeah, any other factors that influence language preference or even a cool other research idea you have or what's on deck yeah. for you? You know, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Gosh, I mean, I don't have anything specific. Honestly, it would all just be different examples of like why, <laughs> why someone would prefer a different language. I know like I've talked to my dad and my mom and they've, they brought this to my attention that I actually hadn't really considered because to them, they grew up um, low income and then um, their adult life has been um, middle class. So it's just been a, a crazy shift for them um, in their lifespan. And so they have this feeling towards socioeconomic status um, and, 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 and depending on who they're speaking to, they code switch, even if it's within the same language, you know, you have a code switch with how you're carrying yourself and how you're speaking that specific language. Um, so my dad's like, if I'm speaking to someone that I can tell is like a, a higher socioeconomic status, but they're Spanish speaking, he's like, I speak Spanish differently. I'm speaking it in a way that I wouldn't speak with my family. That's a bit more like, I don't know, comfortable. Like you have more slang, like you can be a bit more professional. But then in that way, he feels like he needs to speak that way, but he's also doesn't have a lot of experience in speaking Spanish in a professional way that it actually is a little bit of a struggle too. Um, so looking at that would be really interesting is kind of like within language code switching um, and those factors that influence that would be another approach I think to, to be curious about. Um, or like my mom, she, um, she doesn't have a degree, but she's been successful. But to her, she that's where she feels. So she feels a bit more, I think, intimidated and that lacks confidence in speaking to people that she perceives as higher socioeconomic status. She's told me how she feels like her English is, you know, is rocky, like, and she speaks English perfectly fine, like perfectly fine, but she has an accent. And, and so she kind of, or she tries to speak English in a different way, but that she's not necessarily used to. And so that makes her feel a little bit inferior, like she struggles with that. Um, I think another approach would be to look at the medical world, I think, um, or uh, brokering. I've been reading a bit more about language brokering, which is um, when children are having to translate for their parents um, and how that, th I've read that there's been a lot of positive and negative impacts on that, depending on, and that's both positive impacts on the child and, and, and their son themselves, but also with the dynamic between their parents. Um, so those that do language brokering, there's been some findings that it, it, it strengthens the relationship between their parents, which is really nice. But in the other way, it also adds this um, stress to children because it's just kind of a lot to, to put on a child and, and kind of have that responsibility. Um, I've never had to experience that for myself, but very aware of it within my culture and, and how some people have had to do that. Um, so I think another way, and I, I like to specify that with the medical world, just because 
I would think about how for monolinguals, English monolinguals, it might be difficult just to talk about medical terminology, you know, within yourself um, or not even medical stuff, but anything that's kind of in this scope that not necessarily everybody has knowledge of. And it's not because of you're just not like you're it's not because it, it's normal to not have a lot of knowledge on it, you know. And so whether that's through like business, you know, a business aspect, a medical aspect, um, these these fields that have heavy terms that are hard to follow and that not everybody knows that can be a struggle so I know if somebody I could imagine that if somebody's bilingual and they can speak English fine but they don't they don't have a lot of experience in speaking English in like a medical context and having to express you know if they're at a visit or, or if the doctor's telling them you know what's going on in their own body they may not even understand exactly what that what they're what they're saying entirely just because it's like it's difficult for a monolingual you're kind of having having to ask these questions like what exactly do you mean let alone for a bilingual like they can speak english but even in this context it's kind of heavy it's harder um and so they may have a child like translate it for them in spanish because it makes more sense in spanish you can express that a little bit better it just clicks a bit more somehow and so yeah so i'd be interested even looking at that like language brokering and how people express themselves how people with as far as like affect their feelings their emotions um like I know my mom prefers to speak Spanish when she's feeling certain emotions because she can get at that a bit better it's expressed in mm. a in a way that's a lot more thorough mm. for her versus English she she can say what she can through it but it may not necessarily get the full picture for her she's just kind of using what what she can you know um, it reminds me, do you guys watch Modern Family? I used to, yeah. No, okay, well, do you guys know, like, Sophia Vergara's a character who married, like, the yeah. the grandpa? Um, but there was this scene, <laughs> there was this scene where um, she was trying to convince him and her son to maintain Spanish and she got mad and she goes, you don't even know how smart I am in my language. And I don't know why it was supposed to land as a joke and it, the context of it was funny, but I always, I don't know. It just stuck with me. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, I know like my parents feel the same way that they can express yeah. it, like what they know and their thoughts better in their native language versus English. So that just reminded me of that. Yeah, no, that's that's so true. Like, I think that's how my mom, like, I think my mom would probably say that too. Like, I could see her feeling that way. Um, mm -hmm. And they, you bring up, when you were talking, it, it made me even think about, I, I totally forgot about this, but Spanglish, that's like a whole other mm -hmm. world is yeah. in the mid sentence, like my mom can be talking and then all of a sudden midway, like switch Spanish because it's just, it, as she was going through it it's like she knew that this would be better in Spanish so then she's just gonna like finish the sentence mm. in Spanish but or it just goes back and forth and it's so natural to hear that like I think when we're out in public that's what we do the most is like go back and mm -hmm. forth in, in Spanish English within yeah. like the same sentence um and I'd be curious as to like what I, I don't think I wonder how aware we are and when we start to switch I don't know that that's something that we're too aware of I'm sure there's like something right. reasonable behind it but not that, that we're necessarily actively doing in that second it's just sounds natural um but maybe well, there's a pattern a, behind those switches from a language perspective I code switching just boggles my mind because it's such a it's a, I think it's a really complex cognitive linguistic act that happens just so fluently and so quickly yeah. and fast and 
it's seamless and you're like, oh my gosh, your brain semantic connection, but then the cognition that went into the metacognition and metalinguistic processes that go into code switching and your brain has to plan ahead so fast and repair yeah. incredibly fast. It just, code switching will always just blow my mind because- It feels like even, a superpower. It's so neat. It does. And like <laughs> kids, kids can code switch. Mm -hmm. And if you think about like their language, you know, language skills you have when you're young, it's like, oh my gosh, your brain just does that. Yeah. And then for you like, even it's also really interesting um, and mind blowing when you can code switch that quickly to between languages that don't necessarily have the same phonemic characteristics. Oh, gosh. Because then the motor, the motor planning and complexity that comes with that's insane. It's just insane. Um, it's really cool. Oh, no, I applaud. Yeah, I think it, I've been learning more about that, like in the last like two years, it's just mm -hmm. code switching and it's also really cool I think in general reading up on this stuff is putting names to things that I knew mm -hmm. were real um but like mm -hmm. that there's like a name to it now and I'm like code switching I was like whoa like that's what that's called like it's very mm -hmm. real I knew that I did that but I didn't know that like, what it was what, that I even had a term that that it was validated in like a field of research so I was like this is really neat and then I've been learning about it and it, mm -hmm. it does almost feel like the superpower I'm like oh my gosh <laughs> and it happens mm -hmm. so naturally like the way I don't know too much about like how to define it with like linguistic terms but I mean just the way we can combine the sentences and it makes sense if you were to translate them into you could translate it to either Spanish or English like where you need it to and it would just make sense still if that mm -hmm. makes, if that even right if I'm putting that right yeah you know? <laughs> like the the gr grammaticality yeah yeah, yeah I think exactly. I just I don't know Brittany is that a real word <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah um here we define still makes sense. <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah it's just crazy mm -hmm. yeah I really like uh, it code switching oh no go ahead oh I was gonna, I was just saying it was it's 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 cool it's just fun seeing people do it it's fun doing mm -hmm. it um uh, fun in the sense that like I'm aware of it like I'm, I'm more aware of it I'm like oh this is like I know what's going on behind it which makes it a little bit more fun to acknowledge mm -hmm. but or even just seeing it I think it's now all like learning about all this stuff and reading about it now when I'm with my family I feel like I'm accessing them and I'm just like watching their behaviors and I'm like this mm -hmm. is so cool to see it live <laughs> like yeah. to pay more attention to it so I'm gonna be more mm -hmm. I'm gonna be more attentive to it I'm going into Dallas on Wednesday um Ooh, and fun. so I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little more aware of it now <laughs> mm-hmm mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I picture it as like someone playing two instruments at the same time. And the song is uh, everything's in the right key. Yeah. Everything's working. But like, mm -hmm. yeah. you're playing two instruments at the same time. And sometimes the notes up here and sometimes like you're doing this with your feet. And it's like, so it seems like so much that people just it happens. Like you said, Julie, it's so fluent. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's so cool. <laughs> All I can picture now is like those one man bands where they have like the drums and the harmonica. And yeah, it's like all connected. And that's like, it. Ah. You're like, if I could define code switching and bilingualism, this is it. <laughs> that is so right. true. Like I grew up in a bilingual household, but English was my first language. English is my predominant language. Um, my most confident and comfortable language. But there's often times still that I can't think of the word in English and I know it in Spanish 
and I'll be like, mm. how has this like happened for me where I'm like, this is like, this is my more safe language, but all of a sudden mm. I'm like, how do I translate this? Like there's some things though in Spanish that you can't necessarily translate or when you do, it's not the same. So I know like mm-hmm. another funny thing like I've noticed about myself is like anytime I am frustrated. So if it's like, but like a, a instant frustration from like driving and you know, like someone just cuts you off or like when I stub my toe or if I drop something like little mistakes, my, my first reaction is Spanish. Like this is cuss words in Spanish. And I want to <laughs> guess that that's because Spanish, like you're able to express those emotions at this like really aggressive and like powerful nature. Like it gets mm-hmm. at it more than, than anything in English would. And because, mm-hmm. and it's because it's almost like a, they're terms. Like you say, um, I won't be saying them here, but it's just like a, it's not just a single <laughs> word, like the F word. It's like, you're you're really saying like a whole sentence, but it's all just this like big cut <laughs> because it's like more poetic. There's a lot more like like there's energy so much behind passion. it. So much passion. Uh, so then you just that comes out naturally for me in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like little things like that. Like really cool to see how different people like to express themselves in their languages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. That makes me feel like there's almost this. Um, like uh, a conscious language preference like you know you describe the grocery oh, store yeah. where it's like okay I'm gonna speak English here because I'm in um this grocery store where like you know that's expected but that's almost the swearing and like the emotional response it's almost like a subconscious language yeah. preference that your brain just like does for you mm-hmm. no that's so true um yeah you bring up a great point <laughs> That's so mm-hmm. true. I don't even know how you'd be good to like look at that. I think um, overall, I think I've just become so much more aware of like, I have felt these things throughout my entire development. Um, and it's just been exciting to make sense of it, um, to validate it and to be able to look at it and research it for other people. So it's just mm-hmm. cool to be like, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not crazy. <laughs> I'm not the only one. This is very yeah. real. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This is, I know it's going to be so valuable for SLPs to hear Mm -hmm. this conversation, Um, both for like SLPs who would relate to your lived experiences, but also SLPs working with families who are bilingual, bicultural, like it's just so important. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I've been, I love being able to talk about this. Like I could talk about it for forever so <laughs> any chance I get I'm like yeah get me in on that <laughs> I appreciate yeah. it hey there listeners thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode if you're enjoying the podcast go rate us if you're not sure what to rate just leave five stars for now and then you can revisit that later all right let's get back to this week's episode